prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you've told us that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness. And we pray that this morning you will speak to us in your you will correct us and point us to the right way. You teach us and train us in your path of righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I heard recently about this uh, SAF captain who went to the casino just because he was very curious. And the first time he was there, he got hooked instantly. And over the next few months, he, he lost heaps of money in the casino. He had to borrow so much money that he went into a lot of debt. And then what he had to do, he had to go and become a loan shark runner okay, and, uh, and harass people in order to make some money back. But each time he got some money back, he would go back to the casino and lose more money and get into more and more debt. So what, did he, what happened to him? Well, he lost his army job. His wife and children went back to Taiwan. His parents never wanted to talk to him again. He was sentenced to two years jail and 12 strokes of the cane. Now, you know what? That is a parable for something that can happen to us as God's people. Now, Sometimes we want to, out of curiosity, dabble in a little bit of sin and we end up trapped. See, in the book of Judges, it shows that this can actually happen to God's people. Judges is a, is a story of how Israel went from being God's faithful, obedient people to being God's dis, uh, disobedient, unbelieving people. And in today's passage, chapter 1 to, chap- to the beginning of chapter 2, is the start of how, how it all began. So let's now look at this book of Judges and uh, keep it open before you to Judges chapter 1. Now the first verse in, in the book of Judges says, After the death of Joshua. Judges continues the story from Joshua. And Joshua continues the story from before. So in order for us to understand Judges, we need to know what has happened before Judges. Okay, so let me just give you a brief summary. God made the whole world, it says in the book of Genesis. And, but the problem of sin came into the world. So God had a plan to get rid of this problem of sin. And what was it? Well, it was to choose this one man, Abraham, and to give him a promise. God promised to give him blessing. God promised to give him descendants. God promised to give him land. And he said, through you, Abraham, the whole world will be blessed. I will get rid of the problem of sin through you. And eventually God kept his promise. The people had descendants. The people had blessing. They had salvation from their slavery in Egypt and they also had a relationship with God. So the next promise is the promise of land. And this promise is the focus of the whole book of uh, at least half of Numbers, of Deuteronomy, of Joshua and now of Judges. The problem is how do we get and take possession of this land? Now you might remember that uh, when we did Deuteronomy last year we said that the people uh, who went to the land refused to go in at first. And so that whole generation died in the desert. And in Deuteronomy, Moses speaks to a new generation in Israel. And he told them to go in, take the land. So let me read to you from Deuteronomy 
just to give you the background, Deuteronomy chapter 7. It'll be up here as well. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Gergeshites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. So the generation that Moses spoke to in Deuteronomy, they were faithful. They actually did what God commanded through Moses. They went in and defeated the people of the land. And that's all recorded for us in the book of Joshua. But towards the end of Joshua's life, there's still a lot of land remaining to be taken. So this now is the responsibility of the next generation in the book of Judges. They have to go and occupy the land and drive out the people. And they mustn't do any deals with them. They mustn't uh, intermarry with them. They must smash all their idols, burn everything. And God will give them the victory. And so with this background in mind, let's look at Judges. In verses 1 to 20. Now, after the death of Joshua, immediately in, in verse 1, the Israelites asked God, God, who should go and fight first? So, that's good, isn't it? I mean, that they are starting off well. They are really keen. They are really keen to obey God and do what He wants. And so, in verse 2, God tells Judah, you go and fight. Judah, the tribe of Judah. In verse 3, Judah goes and takes along his brother tribe, Simeon, and they together go and fight the Canaanites. And the first place they go to is Bezek. Okay? And they captured the, the king uh, or the, the leader of Bezek called Adoni Bezek, which just means Lord of Bezek. And they cut off his thumbs and big toes. Ouch, that sounds a bit cruel, right? And that raises for us a question. Was God being cruel to the Canaanites in getting rid of them from the land? Now, often people have this question. Now the reason that God had to remove the Canaanites from the land was because he had to punish their sin. Now the Canaanites had rejected God. They are full of terrible idolatry. They had a very immoral and evil religion. You know, their idea of uh, worshipping the Baal was to go to the temple and have sex with the temple prostitutes. Their idea of worshipping Baal was to sacrifice their children in the fire. This was the type of sin that God had to get rid of from the land. So in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 9, I'll read to you from verse 4, up there as well. This is the reason why God had to get rid of the Canaanites. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. So why does God have to get rid of them? Well, because God has to judge them and it's also God's grace for the Israelites to give them the land and to prevent them from being contaminated by the sin and idolatry. 
Now, back to Adoni Bezek. Adoni Bezek is a, a typical Canaanite. He's a cruel, ruthless, godless man. He caught 70 kings and cut off their thumbs and big toes. Imagine not having thumbs and big toes. You can't pick up things very well, isn't it? Imagine. You can't walk properly. You can't wear your high heels. See, God has now defeated and humiliated Adoni Bezek. You see, in Adoni Bezek, we see that God is punishing the Canaanites. Even Adoni Bezek realizes that it's happening, you see. He says in, uh, in uh, verse 7, God has paid me back for what I did to them. He knows it is punishment from God. And then after Bezek, uh, Judah goes on to fight and win many other places. And that's listed for us in verses 8 to 20. So I'll show you a map on the screen. Yeah, Sorry, it's not that clear, but... Uh, at first, they, they're in Bezek, and then they go to Jerusalem, which is here. Okay, and then they fight in the, in the hill country, which is this region here, the hill country. The Negev is the southern part here. Okay, and the, uh, the western foothills are about here, okay, to the west of the hill country. And then, basically, that inclu- includes these places, Hebron, which is mentioned in, in the narrative, and then Debir, and then Hormah. And then later on they go to the Philistine cities here, Gaza and Ashkelon and Ekron to capture these places. It's all mentioned there. Now they basically capture a, a wide area of land. And what does this tell us? I mean, it's all interesting to know this history, but what does it actually tell us? Well, are we supposed to conclude that Judah had more advanced military tactics, maybe that better commanders or better strategic plans for conquering the enemy? Well, No. See, the answer is in verse 2. is God. God said in verse 2, I have given the land into their hands. And verse 4, The Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands. And verse 19, The Lord was with the men of Judah. So you can't miss it. The point here, in listing out all these places, is that God keeps His promise. God is faithful to His word. God is giving them the victory. See, God is a faithful and a covenant-keeping God. And not only that, we also see that Judah is a faithful tribe. God's people, Judah, are obeying God as they should be. This is how God's people are supposed to be living. And so now we have a a, a detail, a zoom-in on a, a particular part of Judah. There is three people in Judah. Caleb, Othniel, and Aksa. Let me read to you from verse 11. It's in your Bible. From there, they advanced against the people living in Deborah, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. One day, when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And when she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What can I do for you? She replied, Do me a special favor. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. And then Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. Now what is this story doing here? Because when we read it, it's it's possible for us to think, well, Caleb shouldn't use his daughter as uh, some kind of prize. And uh, Othniel, you know, is probably attacking the city for the the wrong reason. He has the wrong motive. And uh, Aksa shouldn't be so greedy to ask for the land. You know, but... That is missing the point of the story. See, the, when we find a Bible story that's hard to understand, we always need to ask ourselves, what does it tell us about God here? What does it tell us about God? And the answer is that God never fails 
those who are faithful to Him. God is a faithful God. Now, we need to understand the, the background of Caleb a bit. Okay, so the first time we hear of Caleb is in the book of Numbers, in Numbers 13. And he was one of those spies that Moses sent out, one of the twelve spies that went out to scout out the land uh, to check it out. And let me read to you what happened after that in Numbers. So these spies came back and they told Moses, We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go out and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone out with him said, We can't attack those people, they are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. See, Caleb was the one who spoke up for God all those years ago when everybody else refused to obey God. And now God honors Caleb by giving him the land in Hebron. That says that in verse 20, isn't it? That the, uh, he had land in Hebron. And when everybody else was so scared of the sons of Anak, Caleb stood firm and now he personally gets to g- get rid of these three sons of Anak. And that's also in verse 20 we read that. Who drove from it the three sons of Anak. See, God is a God who keeps his promises. But then Caleb takes the initiative to take more land. You see, he goes against Deborah as well as Hebron. So before we start thinking of Caleb as this really greedy guy who really wants so much real estate, remember that taking the land from the enemy is not a bad thing. It's not a selfish thing. It is a good thing because it is doing what God told them to do. See, Not only does Caleb himself go and fight, he also gives incentives to other Israelites to fight. Maybe he strengthens their courage. So he offers his daughter as, as a wife to whoever would come and fight. Caleb is somebody with godly initiative, he's passionate about obeying God, he's always looking for ways to do God's will. And that's something that we could learn from. And what about Othniel? Well, we're not told what exactly was his stronger motivation, whether it was the girl or, or the, you know, to obey God and capture the land, but basically at the end of the day, he did obey God, he was faithful to God, and he went and captured the land. He did what God commanded. And how about Aksa? Well, she asks her husband Othniel to ask her father for land, and then she also goes and asks him for water for the land, right? Now, there's nothing manipulative or, or calculating about him. She's not tricking her father into giving her land. She's just asking. See, Aksa is like Caleb, full of faith and dependence on God. Because after all, this land that Caleb has is from God. And so she's actually asking for God's land. It's a gift from God. So here we see a real life example of God's promise actually being fulfilled in the life of ordinary Israelites in Israel. Not just at the national level, but at the individual level. God is fulfilling His promise to His people. He's a faithful God. He will not disappoint His people. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is a faithful God 
who will not disappoint his people. Do you trust him? You know, don't say, you know, I don't trust God because he hasn't given me this, he hasn't given me that. No, God is a God who has proved himself again and again. And God has never promised to take away our ill health. And God has never promised to remove our financial problems or our loneliness. But he did send his son to die so that we can be saved from sin and hell. God has given us eternal life to be with him in heaven forevermore. And God has promised to give us whatever we need in life. Is that not good enough for you? You know, after saving you from hell, are we going to complain? Do we have a right to complain about God? And how dare we say, I'm disappointed with God? God is faithful. So continue to be faithful. Continue to trust in God and do not throw away the confidence that you have. Now coming back to the story, Judah is on a roll here. It seems nothing can stop Judah. One victory after another, everything is going really well. And then there's a big surprise, suddenly we are stopped in our tracks. In verse 19, what does verse 19 say? The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. What? Iron chariots? Undefeated Judah can't drive the people from the plains because of iron chariots. How can that be? Now, we need to just understand now, okay, how big iron chariots were at that time. So imagine you were a soldier in Judah. Okay? Your grandparents were slaves in Egypt. You, you never really got any proper military training. Okay? You're only a foot soldier with very ordinary weapons, maybe bow, arrow, or spear, whatever. And then you go down this valley and you start seeing these hundreds of gleaming iron chariots in the sun with horses who cannot wait to gallop towards you and stomp you under, under, underfoot. Wouldn't you be scared? Well, the people of Judah did have good reason to be scared. But haven't they forgotten something? Haven't they forgotten their history? You know, how had they won all their victories so far? Well, it was because God was on their side, not because they were a superior army. See, again and again in their history, God gave them victory despite their smaller numbers and despite the fact that they lacked military power. So think back to Pharaoh in Exodus. How those chariots and those horsemen got stuck in the mud and got washed away by the Red Sea. And think of Jericho in the book of Joshua where they didn't even lift a single weapon. They just blew the trumpet and the whole thing collapsed. And think of how God, uh, uh, this may be not so familiar, in Joshua 11, God defeated a huge combined army of several Canaanite kings together, a coalition army, and with all their chariots, God burned all the chariots. Are iron chariots too hard for God? No. So then what went wrong here? Well, surely it's not because of the iron chariots. It's not because God has no power to overcome them. It must be because the people looked at the iron chariots and lost their nerve and wavered in their faith. So Judah may be the most successful and the most faithful tribe here, but they are still flawed. 
See, they looked at the iron chariots and went, No, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to, into that plane. I don't care if God you know, said that He has given the land into my hands. It's too risky. You know, if anything happens, who's going to look after my wife and my kids? Right? So, they start thinking like the rebellious generation of Moses' time. We can't do this. And we won't do this. Now, isn't it true that sometimes we also find ourselves disobeying God because of our fear? You know, don't we sometimes stop believing what God says because it seems too unrealistic for us at the time? So we turn to our own human reasoning, we turn to our own human strategies instead of trusting God to deliver on His Word. You know, we say to ourselves, God can't possibly have meant that. So if I pass over this job, which makes me do crazy hours so that I can have more time to do Bible study and serve in church and all that, then I won't be able to provide for myself and my family. You know, don't you know, doesn't God know how expensive it is to live in Singapore nowadays? I can't afford not to prioritize my career. It's fear instead of trust. Or if I don't marry this non-Christian who likes me, then how can I ever find somebody God, doesn't God know how lonely I am? How come God never brings me a good Christian guy or girl? You know, I'm not getting any younger, so I have to take matters into my own hands. It can't be that important anyway. So many other people do it. Surely God will understand. Fear instead of trust. So what is your iron chariot? You know, what is the area in your life that you, you say, Lord, I'm willing to obey everything except this area? What is the one thing that you refuse to surrender to God's will? God wants that too. God is not satisfied with 99% obedience. He wants 100%. You know, Judah may say to God, but God, look, we went to Bezek, we conquered Jerusalem and Hebron and Debir and Homa and Ashkelon and Gaza and all those places. God says, what about the plains with the iron chariots? See, God wants every area of our life whether big or small, to come under His control. Because if He is not Lord of all, He is not Lord at all. So will you surrender everything to Him? Now if you thought Judah didn't quite end as well as it started, well, wait till you read about the other tribes. So verses 21 to 36 now turn their attention to the northern tribes and tell us how successful they were in occupying the land and driving out the Canaanites. So we read in verse 22, Now the house of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And when they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, or Luz, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you are treated well. And so he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. He then went to the land of the Hittites where he built a city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. The house of Joseph is the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Now they successfully captured Bethel. He says that the Lord was with them. In verse 22. But they did it the wrong way. See, they, God clearly told them, don't let any Canaanites escape. Don't do any deals with them. But here, the house of Joseph struck a deal with the Canaanite. And they, yes, they put the city to the sword, but once the use, the guy escaped, and then he went and 
resurrected the city somewhere else and built exactly the same Canaanite city somewhere else. All they've done is relocate the city from here to there. See, why did they do a deal? Well, probably out of convenience. Maybe they're thinking there's no point to draw this battle. Uh, God is uh, a bit too fussy. Okay, let's just close one eye. Okay, let's get this over and done with as quickly as we can. We're all tired. We all want to go home, spend time with our families, right? So, uh, it's no big deal. It's only just one Canaanite, well, only one, right? So, just let him go, uh, you know? And so, they disobeyed God. And then in verse 27 onwards, we read, but Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bashan, or Tanakh, or Dor, or Ibliam, or Megiddo. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. Nor did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron, or Nahalol. Nor did Asher drive out, and so on, and so on, and so on. The whole list of places they didn't drive out. So every tribe's description starts like this. Tribe X did not drive out the people of Y and Z, and so on. See, it's not just that they could not drive them out. It says they did not drive them out. In other words, they deliberately disobeyed God. And it gets worse and worse and worse. So in verse 27 to verse 30, the tribes of Manasseh, Ephraim and Zebulun did not drive out all the Canaanites who lived among them. But at least it says there that the Canaanites were living among the Israelites, implying that the, the Israelites were the majority and the Canaanites were the minority. But then when you get to verse 31... Asher and Naphtali now are the ones who are living among the Canaanites, which means now the Canaanites are the majority and the Israelites are the minority. But the worst tribe of all is the tribe of Dan, to the far north. See, in verse 34 to 36, they are actually trapped in the hill country and the Canaanites will not let them down into the plains. They are surrounded. The whole plains are swarming with Canaanites. So what went wrong here? See, God had promised again and again to be with His people and give them the land. It's not that God has failed them. No, the problem is they have failed God. See, if you can put Canaanites in forced labor, don't tell me that you cannot drive them out of the land. Surely you can also drive them out. It's just they chose not to. Why? Why did they choose not to drive them out? Well, maybe they were thinking, God's way is so unrealistic. I mean, come on, why drive these people out? You know, it's a huge waste of human resource. They are free labor. They are foreign talent. You know, we need helpers at home. We need slaves to till our fields. We need people to work in all the Canaanite restaurants that we like to eat at. You know, see, their way was more important to them than obeying God. They knew what God demanded, but they rationalized it all and they chose to just ignore God and do it their own way. How easy it is to justify our sin. How easy to rationalize our sin away. How easy to be selective in hearing God. We say, yes, I want to obey you, God. But we make exceptions when it suits us. Isn't that what people do? When they say, oh, it's okay, I know I'm sleeping together before marriage, but... Anyway, we're going to get married, lah, so it's no big deal. We're going to get married anyway. Or, or I, I don't, uh, you know, homosexuality is okay. Because we love one another anyway. And anyway, the Bible doesn't really teach that homosexual acts between two consenting loving adults is wrong. Or, 
Ah, yeah, it's okay for me to take this from the office. There's so much, you know, they won't even notice it. Anyway, I work so hard for them, I'm underpaid by them, I deserve to get something anyway. Or, ah, yeah, it's okay to lie and gossip once in a while. Uh, everybody does it. It's not so bad. It's not so serious. Anyway, I can't help it also. <laughs> See, we squirm out of obeying God's word. And we make it seem so reasonable and so acceptable as well. And that is how deceitful and seductive and dangerous sin can be. Now, if Judah compromised out of fear, these northern tribes compromised out of attraction to the pagan lifestyle. They saw how the Canaanites lived and they said, we want some of that. They have more comfortable lives than us. They are more civilized. They are more sophisticated. Their religion is much more fun than ours. I want that. And so Israel tolerated the pagan nations. And then they became attracted to their lifestyle. And then they started to intermarry with these people. And finally, they worshipped their idols. Small compromises. That's what gets us. Now most people don't just suddenly lose their faith out of the blue. No, losing our faith starts from the smallest compromises. See, from seemingly small compromises, things just get worse and worse and worse in the book of Judges, as we will find out over the next few weeks, and they spiral out of control. Because once you allow sin to get a foothold in your life, then it will consume all of you. Just like what happened to that SAF captain who was just curious about the casino, and he ended up being a loan shark runner, ended up in jail. That's exactly what can happen to us. Sin can hook us in. Then it wants more and more and more of us until we are completely in bondage to it. Sin is addictive, just like drugs. Once you have started, it's very, very hard to stop. You may be curious. I wonder what it's like to just live a non-Christian lifestyle for a while. And then when I have enough fun and get sick of it, I'll come back to church and be a Christian again. Don't be so confident that you can control it. Now, don't think that once you've had enough fun, you can just stop it and come back to God anytime. Stop now while you can. Repent now. Turn back to God before your heart is hardened against God to the point of no return. Now, the New Testament reminds us that friendship with the world is enmity or hatred towards God. Let me read to you from James. Chapter 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And another passage in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you 
and you will be sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. We do not belong to this world. We must be separate from them. Just like Israel had to be separate from the Canaanites. And that means it's wrong for us to partner with unbelievers to do sinful things. It's wrong for us to accept the world's way of living and their value system. It's wrong for us to marry unbelievers. It's wrong for us to compromise with other religions. Therefore, come out and be separate, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. Now, after a whole chapter in Judges, describing depressing failure after depressing failure, God has been silent so far, but now, finally, God speaks in chapter 2. And let's see what God says. Chapter 2, verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now, therefore, I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. There will be thorns in your sight, and their gods will be a snare to you. God reminds Israel that He made this unbreakable covenant with them. But God's covenant is not just one-sided. It demands a response from the people. It means that Israel must not make a covenant with the people of the land. So, a covenant with God means no covenant with the people. It means exclusive loyalty to God. But instead, they have gone and struck deals and made covenants with all these Canaanite people. They have spared them. They have not have broken down their altars and not burned their idols. Now, Israel, the Israelites might think that they are being so noble, so forgiving and so merciful, but actually it is a slap in God's face because they are ignoring God. So now God does to them exactly what He said He would do. Because they have not obeyed, God will say, uh, God said in the past, say in the book of Joshua, that if you do not obey, I will no longer drive out the nations. And that's exactly what He does here. But it doesn't mean that God has abandoned His people, you know. It doesn't mean God is done with them. It doesn't mean God is finished here. I can't be bothered with them anymore. Because if He wanted to abandon His sinful people, He could have done it a long time ago. He could have done it in Exodus when they made a golden calf right after promising to obey God's laws. He could have done it in Numbers 13 when those people say, we refuse to go into the land. No. God is still a faithful God. He persists with His people even though they are sinning against Him. God is still a God who loves His people despite their rebellion. God wants this relationship with His people. God wants to be their God. And so God will remain faithful to Israel. And the very fact that an angel comes to speak to them shows that God is still interested. He still wants them to return to Him. Now today, God is speaking His word to you to give you a chance to repent because He wants to continue this relationship with us. He wants to bless us. He wants us to be His people and to enjoy the benefits of that. He wants us to turn away from this world and turn back to Him. So are we going to repent now while we have the chance? 
So let's look now finally at what Israel, Israel's response was in verse 4 to 5. How did they respond? Well, it says they wept aloud and they offered sacrifices to the Lord. So it seems all good. They were repentant, right? Really? Were they really repentant? Now what is the problem that God accused them of? The problem is they did not uh, they, they made covenant with the people and they did not break down their altars. So if they really repented, what should they have done? Well, they should have gone and stopped making all these covenants with the people and go and break down their altars and idols and drive them out. That would be true repentance. Well, did they do that? Don't know, because it doesn't say in today's passage, right? But if you read on, we know that they didn't do it. They didn't truly repent. Then why did they cry the tears? Well, it, they were tears perhaps of self-interest. See, this reminds me of the time in Numbers 13, right? Uh, which I mentioned just now, when they went into the, uh, you know, they went to the border of the land. And God says, okay, now's the time. Go and enter the land. And say, no, no, God, these people are giants. I don't want. And God said, okay, if that's the way you want it, then I won't let you go into the land. You will die in the desert. Oh, really? Ah? Okay, then I better go into the land. But God says, no, uh, it's too late now. If you go into the land, I won't be with you. You're going to die in battle. Oh, no, no, uh, let's just go. We'll obey God. Come on, let's obey God. Oh, sorry, God. You know, they start crying, everything. They go into the land and they were roundly defeated. See, why did they disobey God's word twice? And, and, and as though they were so repentant. Well, it's really because of self-interest. Isn't it? They realize, oh, God is no longer going to be with us. We're going to die in the desert. Okay, then in that case, it's better to go inside the land. See, here the people of Israel are doing the same thing again. They want the benefits of being God's people. Yes, they want it. But they don't want the responsibility of total obedience. See, they cry tears of regret because they've lost God's favor upon them. They cry tears of regret because life will no longer be easy for them. But what are tears and sacrifices without obedience. God says to obey is better than sacrifice. Now isn't it true that sometimes we want the benefits of being God's people without the responsibility of total obedience? Isn't it true that we want to have our cake and eat it too? We want to have both the benefits of being Christians and also the perks of being non-Christians. We want to be safe and go to heaven but we also want to live in sin. That cannot happen. God is not mocked, it says in Galatians. He is not a fool. No amount of tears or guilt or shame will mean anything unless you stop sinning and start obeying God. God wants to see your repentance in action. So remember that SAF captain that I have been mentioning. Because if you are not careful, that can happen to you. God has done everything possible for you to have eternal life and blessing. He sent His Son to die to take your sin. And He calls you to be faithful to His covenant, uh, to keep trusting Him, to keep obeying Him. That's all you need to do. So will you choose the pleasures of sin for a short while and forfeit all of these blessings from God? Now, will you side with God's enemies or with God? You cannot be on both sides at the same time. Don't let sin deceive you, but choose today who we are going to serve. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, great is your faithfulness and mercy to us. We are sinners who deserve your wrath. And yet you plucked us out of the gutter. And you gave us life through your beloved Son. And you seated us in the heavenly places with Christ. Forgive us that we are so often double-minded, so prone to indulge in the deadly pleasures of sin, rather than serve you wholeheartedly. Please strengthen us to love you with all our hearts and mind and soul and strength, and to be faithful to you as long as we shall live. May we stand before you unashamed on the last day, so that we will not hear you say, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. But instead, hear the words, Well done, faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.